Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Aaron, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Good to see you, Justin. Uh, and there's David. Good to see you, Dave. Hey, Dave. Hello. We have Matt tilting his head to the side. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's he's working on his poses or if that's not him. No, that's me. That's me live. That's an avatar. Link, no, Matt. Link. <laughs> Dave, about you got the building rented in Liberia. Yeah, yeah. That uh, God really moved on that. We got the building rented. He had a group in there the other day sending me pictures. They're painting the inside and kind of getting it ready. And hope hopefully by December we'll be able to have classes. Good deal. Uh, Good deal. Did you have any questions or comments initially? As I was going through the pictures, I was wondering, you know, there was a lot of the artwork had Mary in them. There was a part of me that was wondering, was this the church's attempt to introduce the feminine side of God of sorts, right? The whole the Holy Spirit. You know, I know some of the early church writers would talk about the Holy Spirit as the mother. You know, you have the father, son, and mother. So I didn't know, you know, because in some of the artwork, Mary was, you know, she certainly was a subordinate. And at other times, she seemed to have a higher role within the art. I didn't know if this was a takeoff of connecting with the Holy Spirit and the feminine side, not that Mary was the Holy Spirit. That is the question. Yeah, I think we have to talk about the timeline here. That was the most powerful and popular image of salvation until Renaissance-ish times when people started cutting up the human body and objectifying it. Now, you know, now they would see a sexualized woman more so. The question, let me throw it another way, is the question is, is there any connection between Mary and the Holy Spirit. And I think the in running it down, you know, for step one, in the beginning, there is no representation of the Trinity in art. And so we're talking what? We're talking about 300 years, 400 years before in the catacombs, they discover that there is some portrayal. And then in the beginning, the portrayal is of three visitors to Abraham are presented you know, those three visitors are Trinitarian. But at the same time that we're talking about lack of art, then there is also Origen, who describes the feminine. And of course, the Jewish conception, the Jewish word for spirit or ruah or is feminine. And so there seemed to be free talk among certain Jewish Christians of the Holy Spirit as mother, feminine. And so her, you know, her end point is that the portrayal, doctrinally, they want to say that God is beyond gender. But what's happening in the portrayal of God is that, in fact, God the Father is very often portrayed, and then there is the feminine, sometimes the feminine spirit, that though they Uh, wanted to think about God beyond gender, it's really hard to do that. That, in fact, humanly speaking, 
our access to this Trinitarian understanding is a gendered <coughs> understanding. thing I think that she's tracing, first of all, the kind of the hunt the pigeon sort of thing, after Origen and Tertullian and after the early church, there is a tendency to subordinate the role of the Spirit, and that becomes obvious then in the, the pigeon or the dove representative of the Holy Spirit is sometimes very hard to find and then disappears. And then there appears a kind of privileging of the role of Mary. But Matt, let me turn to you. Explain to us then what that might symbolize. Well, I would I would want to say that some of these things are too high for me, but I would want to say that uh, Mary is absolutely full of the Holy Spirit. So yes, you know, there's absolutely a relationship between the mother of God and the Holy Spirit. We, in the Eastern church, we call her the Theotokos, you know, the God bearer. It's interesting. I was just looking in John 14 and John 16, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ himself refers to the Holy Spirit as a he, uh, you know, that he will come to you. He will guide you, you know, into all truth. But at least from what I understand in the East is that Mary is the, the greatest of the saints. And she's the greatest of the saints precisely because she's full of the Holy Spirit. So she herself, because she's full of the Holy Spirit, gives birth to Christ. The, and we're all supposed to do this, right? In our lives, we're all supposed to sort of give birth to Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with Christ, to always be giving birth to him. You know, the saints are called to emulate uh, the mother of our Lord in this way. And so we would want to be very careful to say that Mary is, is not the Holy Spirit, right? We wouldn't want to conflate the two. Um, we would want to say that the that there's the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then Mary is the is the greatest of the saints. You know, we call her the Mother of the Light. You know, we have like these provocative terms, right? Where it's like she's, uh, you know, that that was the big controversy. It's like, well, can you say that Mary was the Mother of God, or was she just the Mother of Jesus? And so there was a big controversy about this, and the churches say, well, Mary is the Mother of God because Jesus is the Son of God. These, I guess I, I would just want to say two things that yes, Mary is full of the Holy Spirit and that uh, no, Mary is not the Holy Spirit. So they're not, the two aren't conflated. But I think that in, in the Eastern understanding, right, of theosis, you know, where the, where the whole point of Christian salvation then is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be one with Christ, to be one with God, that's the goal of, of the Christian life. And so Mary, the mother of our Lord, exemplifies that in her in her saintliness that's where i would want to start there and that if you look in the iconography mary of course holds like a, a very high place but not to be confused with though you know the holy trinity and i think that's what she say let me read the opening of the chapter the simultaneous feminization of the spirit in some paintings and the regular replacement of the spirit by the virgin mary represent important implicit relocations of the female power and presence, but arguably serve more to shore up cultural stereotypes of femininity rather than dissolve them. There are, however, exceptions to this rule in which the dominance and forceful beauty of the place of the Virgin presents a different visual impact. I mean, I, I guess it's an interpretive understanding but I think what she's trying to do in part is to coordinate and say, okay, what is happening? In other words, we're losing, in some way, there is a subordination of the spirit. And 
I think David's question is, does the focus on Mary rescue the spirit, or is this a an attempt to focus on the spirit, or in fact, is the focus on Mary itself representative of the subordination of the spirit? In other words, that the adulation of Mary does it, and this is the question, and I'm not sure I have the answer, does the adulation of Mary in some way foreclose on the rightful role or rightful emphasis of the Holy Spirit. She mentions that a couple in a row, you know, the Virgin where it has three males, pictures of three males that represent the Trinity. And, you know, in the second one, the coronation of the Virgin, you know, she's bowing down and, you know, she's below and being crowned. Right. But then you have the next one that's interesting about the statue of Mary stands above the father and the son the father holding up the cross in that like classic depiction i forget which piece it was but uh she makes a remark that in some sense or the the artwork pictures that you're talking about puts mary at a subordinate role but there is some artwork that puts her almost as there's an addition to the trinity there's four now um <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah i would just i i don't find that again i'm not i'm not an expert in and iconography east or west by any means i i don't see that like it, at least at the iconography that i've seen or at the cathedral where where i go but i would also say that there is right there is like a, at least in the east kind of like this participatory ontology right of, of salvation so that what we would want to say is is that what christian salvation is is to be joined to the holy trinity so we wouldn't want to say a fourth or, or whatever right but we would want to say like an incorporation in, or a participation in the life of God that Mary, again, sort of exemplifies, right? That she's a full participant in, in the life of God and her obedience and her submission and her that she does, you know, to accomplish, you know, the salvation of, of God's people. And we would, we would want to say that, that she is, you know, that she, she plays like a, a, an absolutely critical role in that, in that salvation. So, but I think we're all called, right, to be, uh, again, like not that fourth, but in, in relation to the Trinity, we're, we're called to participate in, in it as, as much as we possibly can. And that Mary is kind of like the exemplar of someone who, who she's the, what we consider the, the greatest of the saints. In other words, David's point and your point are not in contradiction, that at different points in time, it may be that there is practically uh, in the artwork as we find in Mexico and today and in the cult of Mary in some Roman Catholic forms that there is uh, and that's her point the seeming near divinization of Mary not to say that that's standard or that's but and uh, but her, yeah her point is that the artwork goes outside of the bounds of doctrinal orthodoxy what people say in church doesn't line up with what's being drawn or painted and there's more freedom there you know they would never teach from the pulpit or whatever they would never teach tritheism but you know you have these depictions or what they really thought yeah what, pe what people recourse, really thought and recourse formulation you know the symbol gives rise to the thought right but i you know paul said a uh, neat thing he said near divinization I would just want to say that she she's div, you know divinized right that that Mary is again like that exemplar right she's filled with the Holy Spirit she's filled with our Lord Jesus Christ she gives birth to Christ she submits to Christ throughout her life she says 
she gives the greatest, you know, shortest sermon ever. She says, whatever he says, listen to him. It's like the most succinct, greatest sermon ever given, you know, that, yeah, like in that sense, like she's, she was, she was divinized, right? Like she, she was as close as, as we get. But that's <laughs> so, not, yeah, that's not the way she's using the word or the way that I was using the word that in other words, in some depictions, she is made equal to the other persons of the Trinity, not in the sense of theosis. In the, in, in the medieval West, as Justin said, there's such a vast history. I, it's interesting too, just as, little, as a little aside, like the tradition in the West is that St. Luke was the first iconographer and the first icon that he ever you know, wrote, we call it wrote, it's not painted, but it was of the Theotokos, the Mary, you know, Mary the mother of God. And that he actually showed that what, he, you know, the icon that he uh, wrote to Mary and she, she approved, <laughs> she wow. liked it. Well, the problem is we're trying to get at is that the Holy Spirit is missing. The Holy Spirit's completely gone in, in a lot of these depictions. And that, and that's kind of his point that Mary takes the Holy Spirit's place. What is that saying about the confession that God is Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, but then when you look to the popular, you know, these people can't read. They depend on art, visualizations. You know, the symbol gives rise to the thought thing is saying, look to the art for what they really believe, what they're really taught. And so the concern is, you know, what happened to the Holy Spirit? Some, you know, I was thinking earlier, some of these are about where for people to identify with right before the Reformation, where all the men are on the left side under Jesus and all the women are on the right side under Mary. You know, the women are located under a woman. The men are located under a man. Mm -hmm. So she says, what sort of vision of ideal male or female existence is here presented to the viewer? Does the male viewer identify primarily with the father or the son or both? What messages for women are encoded in the virgin's pleading posture? Women, you should be like Mary. Men, you should be like Jesus. First of all, I would say that um, men should want to be like Mary. Second of all, I would say, though, that isn't there like the rich theological tradition, too, that Jesus is the new Adam and that Mary is the new Eve, right? So there really is a recapitulation at work here, too, theologically in the iconography. I find myself kind of with mixed thoughts. Matt, you, you take, obviously, a higher view uh, on Mary than than I do, but how do you paint the Holy Spirit? I wonder if like everybody's like, all right, I don't want to draw another bird. Hey, well, you know, Mary has some of these qualities. Let's start drawing her. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's um, all kinds of ways. A three-headed <laughs> weird thing. Let me read a statement here from the beginning of the chapter that that points to your question, Dave. It is important to underscore by this time this fiery trait that is in the beginning. There is the picture of the Holy Spirit. There is a picture of a kind of power. In general, after Nicaea in the empire, except in direct representation of Pentecost, that is association of power and fire with the Holy Spirit was lost iconographically. Looking ahead, we may see that law, that loss is significant. The more cooing and self-effacing the dove as spirit, the more danger of its quasi-feminization or its near redundancy. In other words, the feminization of the spirit 
she seems to be giving it a kind of double balance. We want to have the feminine, but we also there also may be a kind of, in that culture, even a denigration that goes with it. I think the problem is, at least for me and my, my perspective, is that art is you know, interpreted in so many ways. And I think maybe, you know, like with Matt's background, you know, understanding Mary's role in a certain way, he can look at the uh, at the art and see, well, Mary's not being depicted, you know, as the Holy Spirit. But for the layman, <laughs> for someone who doesn't know that background, he doesn't know the story behind the, the drawing, there is a problem. And I think that's what uh, Coakley is bringing up. And I think that's what we see, you know, here in at least here in Mexico, in which Mary, it's, you know, she's on top uh, in this hierarchical order. She's on top. Jesus comes second because, you know, she gave birth to him. Uh, the father comes after that. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit is last. He's, he's in fourth place if he is somewhere there in the picture. And I think that, you know, that is the, the issue that then Mary becomes more than God any part of the trinity he she becomes more more than that and just by looking at the at the art like i can look at it and, and think well yeah that kind of you know seems like the holy spirit was dropped and she's been <laughs> made a, a goddess there but well let's talk about it you know maybe matt can explain it some other way and i can understand it that that other way but that's not how people will see it and i think that's where the issue you know is you know matt has also explained the whole idea of praying to the saints is like asking you know you guys for prayer you know try pray for me but like here in like i would again here in mexico you know when someone prays to a saint it's not for the saint to you know deliver the message if the miracle of that prayer happens people never thank god for that it's always the saint and so the saint is the one that becomes the idol it becomes the god that you know, provided the miracle. So I think that's where the, the where the issue can go. I'm not sure if that's Coakley's you know whole point, but I think that's that's where it could lead, in which God is you know in this case the Holy Spirit is being ignored and being replaced uh, with you know somebody else. In this case, uh, Mary. So I might be mistaken, but I think that's you know uh, I'm not into art that much. So yeah, I look at drawings and I'm like, oh yeah, that you know this kind of seems like this. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I understand it. I mean, my interpretation on, on that art could be totally wrong, but that's maybe how other people see it too. And then we have an issue. Yeah. Uh, unless, you know, somebody explains it to us. It seems like the problem is just in what happens to the imagination over so long, over so many cultures where now for us, you know, it's like, saying, yeah, God isn't sitting on a throne, an old man with a big white beard, you know, we don't take that seriously because we know God's not a man, God's not gendered, but for a lot of people, that's how they imagine. I mean, when they hear the word God, that's the image that comes to their minds. And what she wants really to point to and say is our depictions of God and the Spirit should lead us to this Romans 8 type of prayer. How, how can you depict that? How can people be led to that? And I love that last piece of art, Blessed Trinity, she notes in there. I mean, because she says it's a near-perfect visual representation of the type of contemplative Trinitarianism to which my argument has been moving in this volume. And it releases the imagination towards such a vision. Um, the person praying is anonymous. It's not a man or a woman. So you can insert yourself in there representatively. The spirit is both dove and fire. 
and is received at the heart. Um, the father is not, doesn't look like a man, doesn't even look like a person, and but it has everlasting arms reaching down and a circular unknown vortex into which the prayer is being caught up. Downward moment is then returned, balanced by an upward one. All this is going on, but the imagination isn't taken over by issues of gender, whether it's on the part of the prayer or the one who's praying. All of the persons of God are involved, and it uses, it uses the imagination in a different way. So what would happen to our prayer if our depictions of God were in this mode? Would people in generally think of God differently and therefore pray differently? What happens to our prayers and stuff when we see a hierarchical depiction of God? Well, I know um, a grown up within Catholicism, uh, and I went through all the CCD classes and stuff like that, and I remember... Get up, uh, break out the catechism. Come on, show us. Yeah, you know, I can still recite Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed out our Hmong woman, and all that good stuff. But in some sense, the Father is filled somewhat with, with wrath of sorts, that uh, Mary is kind of that gentle voice, right? She can speak, you know, on behalf or speak to Jesus or, or something to that. Like or, your mom. Like your mom. Not mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not mine she does either. not have a gentle voice. <laughs> yeah, mine either. Obviously, a lot of that artwork shaped uh, a lot of people's thoughts and, and different things like that. And that hasn't even got to the other piece of art that I wanted to talk about. But Mary teaches us also, you know, how to pray, right? You know, if you think about like, so, so like in the Orthodox Matins, right before the liturgy, you know, we all say the Magnificat, you know, every liturgy, like together, you know, this is, this is a class on the Holy Spirit, right? So we're saying that Mary was full of the Holy Spirit. And so Mary speaks, we should all be able to say with Mary, you know, and Mary said, my soul proclaims the Lord's greatness. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. He looked my upon the Lord and mercy henceforth all generations will bless me because the mighty one has done great things. His mercy is for generations and generations for those who fear him. He's worked his power with his arm. He scattered those who are arrogant in the thoughts of their hearts and their hearts. He's pulled down the kings right from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's given aid to Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed throughout the age. So that's that's a prayer that we should probably learn and pray right and so so mary is giving us more than just like a it's not that we're saying like oh you know she's taking the holy spirit's place but that she's um she's full of the holy spirit and and she's you know teaching us she's teaching us how to pray like we should we should memorize that prayer we should make that prayer a part of our prayer life i think you may be misunderstanding the conversation nobody no, I, is saying that mary is taking the Holy Spirit's place in orthodoxy or in the creeds. But in this chapter, the picture is that there's, there may be that tendency historically in which that has occurred. Right. That's what we're saying right there, Paul. So We're just repeating Coakley. Yeah. yeah. No. She's the feminist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are saying, or at least I'm saying, that the artwork may pick some unorthodox things because she even brings up uh, that sometimes the theology and the artwork are, are maybe going two different directions. Alan's What's the Latin phrase where, you know, the prayers of the people becomes the theology of the church? Alan's point is uh, it resonated with me in Japan 
that in a traditional culture, veneration of the dead is the religion very often. And I think it was the pervasive religion in the world. And I think that's what we have probably in Mexico, certainly there in Japan. And so Roman Catholicism has moved easily into those places and just allowed that to be syncretized with a Roman Catholic kind of understanding in which there's no resistance to the veneration of the dead, and they just call it the veneration of the saints. And so I, I think that's partly what we're up against in all of this. The, we're not talking about orthodoxy here, but we're talking about that there may tend to be a failure of orthodoxy in certain times and places, even, in other words, even now, as we to say, okay, this is what orthodoxy is, yes, but then are we living up to that? And so that, I think that's the issue. It's not to spell out, you know, oh, well, this is the orthodox understanding. What she's doing is, is as Justin said, that in the artwork, you're seeing a more honest expression of the way people were receiving orthodoxy, which was very unorthodox many times. And they got away with it because it was art. We can even go a step further, and I think in Mexico has been the case. <laughs> you know, Mary is losing some ground in, in even in Roman Catholicism, and she's being replaced now with the Holy Death. So you're just exchanging one lady for another one. And not saying that every Catholic praises the Holy Death, but almost everybody who praises the Holy Death is Catholic. And, <laughs> and that is an issue. <laughs> Where now, not, not only the Holy Spirit is being replaced here with Mary, but Mary's being replaced with death now. And so, I mean, this can get darker and darker the, the more we, we go in that road, uh, which I think is what Coakley wants us to think in order to avoid going that way. Holy death uh, is feminine, then. That's interesting. <laughs> the uh, Marshall McLuhan is behind a lot of this stuff, too. His stuff on communications where, you know, his famous phrase is, she doesn't quote him, but she quotes his famous phrase, you know, the medium is the message. Yeah. I found this fascinating, and I actually uh, did a Google search, and I was thankful that it didn't come out too bad. But the even the one with Mary and the vulva, there's quite a bit of artwork done in that area. It's recent artwork, but hundreds and hundreds of years in age. Again, you know, we, we talk about the male dominance side, and I don't know if this was a way of protest, or I, I you know, I don't know, but I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit, if I, uh, did you look up Holy Spirit, or did you look up Mary? I looked up Mary and Vulva. Okay. <laughs> All right. That could be dangerous to Google. Yeah. In the East, she talks about in the East, the spirit is in much less danger of neglect. If anything, she is painting a more positive picture of the East yes. uh, than of the West. So, Matt, there's no denigration of the Eastern Church in this. Before we get offer a critique of, you know, with Coakley, that we should probably say, yeah, but let's talk about what a more correct understanding would be. And let's, and what I'm saying is, is that there is a, a feminine, again, uh, so like in other words, like the highest of the saints is a, is a woman, right? So like, I think that's important to say in a class on the Holy Spirit in the light, in the context of Coakley's book. So it's not to like defend and say, oh, you know, you should, everyone should become Orthodox and, and venerate Mary. 
It's just to say that, yeah, but if I don't think that we can think too highly of Mary in, 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 right? in the Orthodox sense. I think that we can say, like, she's full of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we should be, too. Is it enough, then, can we solve the problem of the subordination of the Spirit through focus on the feminine aspect through Mary? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But that's to that's to go ahead and presume though that there is a subordination of the spirit. That's to like go with Coakley and say that she's right. Again, it's not a question. Should there be a subordination of the spirit? Has but, there been? But historically, has there been the tendency towards a patriarchy in our understanding of the Trinity? And this patriarchy has been interpreted then, East and West, but it gives us a, a particular sensibility. And again, it's not a question of should there be subordination? There has been subordination of the spirit. Has there? That's what I'm saying over and over. That I don't think you're that you keep saying I'm misunderstanding, but I'm saying I, I may disagree that there has in fact been a subordination of the spirit. You're saying there has not been. I'm just taking issue to say that like maybe it's not like a presumptive given that there's been a subordination across the board of the Holy Spirit in art and in, in all sorts of different ways. I don't necessarily like agree that I don't know enough about it, right? But but I'm just saying that like I guess I'm just saying that I don't know that Coakley's thesis is correct. That oh yeah yeah there's just like no question about it. There's been a subordination of the Spirit at the popular level. What if because I was pondering this, this was actually something, Alan, you you wrote something on the class page that kind of bounced my thought. The subordination of the Holy Spirit, I was taught very little about the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a subordination of some sort? I'm talking in my Bible training, in my Bible college. We rarely talked about the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're going to talk about the greats uh, in any field of study, you're going to talk about God, uh, we've talked about the Father and we've talked about the Son, but we haven't. I, I don't think, it, at least historically, uh, most people, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot. I agree with David on, on what he's saying. I think he's, I mean, not talking about like East, West or anything, just in general, at least from my background too. Like this is actually the first class I've ever had just on the Holy Spirit. It's usually ignored. We talked a lot about God. We talk a lot about Jesus and and you know, specifically his death, not much on, on his resurrection. <laughs> but then the Holy Spirit is just like, oh yeah, after Acts, you know, the Holy Spirit came down and the apostles did all these great things. Let's move on with the apostles. <laughs> so that's it. Like, yeah, we, we don't usually talk much about him. Uh, to address Matt's point here, he's saying that there has not been subordination of the Holy Spirit. I didn't well, say that. I said I'm not sure that there's... I just don't take it as a given. Okay, so let's say what he's not ready we, to make a judgment and say yeah. yes. What would? How could we make the take? case that there would be that indicates there's been a subordination of the spirit? What would be the characteristics I of mean, a subordination of the spirit? I so I, I guess part of the point I was trying to make is I've been in cultures where just the men talk. It's almost like the women are invisible; they're not in the room because that's a subordinate role in, in some of those cultures, very patriarchal. Can you make the jump and say, the fact that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot almost puts the Holy Spirit in a subordinate or at least a lesser role of some sorts, which 
So I'd make an argument at least from that that angle. Can I ask you a question, Dave? Then where there is patriarchy, there is a privileging of men, there is a representation of God as male, and is there then uh, is that then a sign of the subordination? in the sense that we often associate in Scripture the picture of the Spirit is a kind of feminine role. There is a kind of correlation between uh, the depiction, the male depiction, the patriarchy, that that tends to coincide with subordination of the Spirit. I thought it was a salient point to point out that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit at least twice as a he. Sure. So to have a Christological... Uh, interpretation first off of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a he. And, that, and those are just off the top of, I, I really would need to do a study on that, but I mean, that, that has to be germane to like our discussion, right? Or is that a sign of patriarchy in the text themselves? Oh, that's, yeah, that's even more complicated. <laughs> Thank you. Or is it, uh, I mean, not that we're disagreeing um, with that. I, I Again, maybe that is a sign of patriarchy in the text, I don't know, but we, we have messed up a lot of other things that are in the Bible. You know, you, you take the whole uh, Junia debate. You know, historically, uh, she went from a female to a male. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't be. Right, she, she couldn't be. Now, we might wrestle over what that meant, that she was an apostle, you know, what that would look like, but they obviously struggle with that. And so then, historically, you can have hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, incorrect yeah theology of sorts i just want to say real quick that but there's like paradox almost all the way through right because what we would normally when we want to talk about god as in some way feminine even in the old testament you know in the pictures i think it's in uh you know ezekiel where you know even if a mother would forget about her child think texts like that the way that we would understand that as christians is like the father right that's in other words right like that's that's the father speaking in feminine terms right about himself and then of course you have the the wisdom so we know that jesus christ is the wisdom of god but of course the wisdom in places like the proverbs are is personified as a woman and then of course we also have the holy spirit hovering over the waters in the first script you know the first verse in the whole bible so the holy spirit is like right there you know if you went to bible college and you just opened up the book and started to read it's right there in the first verse but then, of course, Jesus refer, and there's all sorts of feminine, you know, sort of talk about the, the spirit, both, you know, when it comes to vocabulary and, and gender and all that stuff. But then Jesus refers to him as a as a male, right? So, in other words, like there's like this paradoxical uh, with all three persons of the Trinity, like a sort of ways of talking about the gender in both ways. Do I have that wrong? I think maybe the the issue is not necessarily that he's being subordinate, you know, to the other two. But maybe because of its ambiguity. For for example, like with God as a father, like there's so many examples in the in the scripture that describes him as as a father. You know, even like parables, like there's only bad pro- father, the prodigal son in the Bible too. Yeah, and then you have Jesus, of course. You know, can mistake his gender. You know, <laughs> but then what do you do with the Holy Spirit? Part of the problem is that ambiguity there. Like how? Like I I asked the question joke as a joke earlier on like how do you portray a, a male or female pigeon in a picture like it's almost impossible to do well, but you have pictures of what a father looks like you have you, you know how to picture a, a son but how do you yeah. picture a female or male spirit 
we portray male saints and female saints because they're full of the Holy Spirit. Like that's how we portray. So maybe it's more difficult and kind of like, you know, Trinitarian iconography per se, but the way that we would want to portray the Holy Spirit is in people, right? Male and female. God made, you know, his yeah. image. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I, and I, but I think that maybe that's the problem that, you know, that, that we're discussing and even what we see in iconography that just people don't know how to portray the Holy Spirit specifically, you know, apart from the people. Like, how do you portray him? Well, maybe a pigeon. <laughs> is it a female pigeon or is it a male pigeon? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and yeah. so then what happens is what Coakley, you know, points out, like at some point they just drop the Holy Spirit in some of them, in some of the art, and then, well, Mary comes in. And of course, if we have the background on, on, on what the art is portraying, well, yeah, and then we're not saying Mary's replacing the spirit. But the way people who do not know that background might portray or, or, or interpret the art as precisely that, that Mary is, in fact, replacing him, which that, that would be the problem that, that can rise up. What if no one is there to say, hunt the pigeon, like she said, you know, she's like, she calls it the hunt the pigeon. Well, what if no one's there to tell you to hunt the pigeon? Actually, it was like look where's waldo type of thing like yeah, I, yeah, I was looking I back time looking at it and i missed the spirit the first time i found it when i came back later i was like oh there it was at the very top of the cross in a circle you know yeah but sometimes it's hard to see the famous father you know holding up the cross and and i was like oh the holy spirit's not even in this one and then it was really really tiny because a lot of time art is propaganda and a good point yeah yeah. yeah, art is often propaganda. And you think of, you know, you, Uncle Sam, a lot of time this art is sponsored by the state mixed with the church as well. All the great art and music we think of classically is paid for by the church and the state. Patriarchalism, with the loss of the spirit, then I think the other thing that we're describing, there is a loss of notion in a Eastern sense that it is through the spirit that you have theosis, that you have participation. And, you know, if we take Trelch's three types, it may be then that the church type or that place that is focused, as you're describing, Justin, on a kind of church-state fusion, there is going to be a loss of that kind of economy of a participation and more of a hierarchical understanding like do like she's saying in the book do we want to focus on the spirit that allows for breaking out into freedom and all these other things that causes revolution or do we want to keep the spirit under our thumb keep it under control keep it under wraps i mean what happens when you focus on the spirit a lot versus perhaps a authoritative father figure I don't know. That's what I was getting at earlier. I mean, that's a good way to put it. So the authoritative father figure. So, and this goes along with some of the work that Paul's done, you know, in, in his book with the superego and the big other. And to me, a more interesting question than is the, is the spirit better represented as a male or a female? Like, maybe not more interesting, but just as interesting is the question of, okay, well then why does Jesus refer to himself as a mother hen? Why does the father? Why does what we would now call the father in places like Ezekiel and I think Isaiah refer to him to himself in matriarchal terms? Right? What is that telling us theologically? Why does God Himself describe Himself in both sort of gendered 
ways. So yeah, the received understanding, as Alan pointed out, has been more fatherly, and this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. And isn't that an interesting question? Like, I don't have to know the answer. I would just leave it open to the group. Why does Jesus refer to himself as a mother hen? That doesn't seem, you know, in keeping with his quote-unquote masculinity. Because he's quoting the <laughs> he's quoting from the scriptures when he says that he's not making it up. Yeah, but he's clearly like applying that scripture to himself, right? So that's a good point. But is you know Paul always taught in his early in his Bibthio one hundred and one classes that we have to conform our understandings to the scripture, right? Instead of having instead of trying to conform the the scriptures to our understanding, as like Justin was just saying, with cultural norms and social mores and things like that shifting all the time, like that we need to try to conform our selves and our understanding including of gender then right to like what the scripture is teaching us about for instance male and female god made made you know man in his image male and female he made them so like is that maybe like a more prior question then to like is the holy spirit you know better understood as the feminine part of god or something like this I th god is neither female nor male but god has mothering qualities i mean i think we would want to say we God isn't gendered at all. Do we want to depict God as a male or a female? If you, I mean, if we gave you the money and whatever, and you were an artist, and we said, depict the Trinity, you know, what would you do? What would you think would be the best best way to do it? Would you draw a father figure, a son, and whatever? Well, that was the whole. That's a great question because, like, that was the whole iconoclast controversy. Like, they were saying the iconoclasts were saying you can't draw God. God's uncircumscribable. You can't you you can't draw the Holy Spirit. You can't draw the Father. You can't draw God. But the what they answered the those fathers said, yeah, but God became a man, and yeah. you can and you can represent a man right like you can the the humanity of god through iconography and so that won the day so it, it's it's a very complex discussion right but the fact is is that god became incarnate in a man you know uh, in jesus of nazareth but also refers to himself like like justin said i think you know that's right like he's obviously not gender we're gender that's why i was just taking issue with coakley's you know kind of foundation of her whole argument is this that like okay yeah the the spirit's been subordinated so therefore women have been subordinated it's a it's an argument that may be true right i, I was just pumping the brakes a little bit to say like well is that right maybe it is the issue is not actually the genitals that a person has but that culturally certain characteristics are assigned to feminine and masculine we can certainly talk about god in feminine role and god in masculine role but we all understand that god is beyond you know he doesn't have genitals so that it's not really a matter of male female it's just a picture of the characteristics and the danger is that what we lose in the subordination of the spirit tends to be those feminine qualities that we would want to assign to god and also the participatory the element that we have in romans 8 is our incorporation into god is in and through the holy spirit that God's inner working, you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but also the groanings too too deep for words, that God with us in uh, a continuation of the incarnation is in and through the Holy Spirit. And so the danger is that in subordinating the Spirit, we're not losing, we all understand that God is not gendered, 
but that we may be losing our sense that of this incorporation and feminine participation and sensibility. If our first experience of God is through the Spirit, then how come the Spirit always gets third, shortchanged? Because we get a perverted view, we get a masculine view. Like you were trying to say the other week, Paul, the economic versus imminent sort of thing. Maybe our depictions and our focus tends to be more imminent versus economical, but if our experience is more the economic trinity, we get caught up in the spirit into the life of God. Shouldn't it be the opposite in our art? Shouldn't the spirit be like the biggest thing, the most prominent thing? How come it ends up being hunt the pigeon? Well, there is our experience of God and the reality, oh, that we do have the experience through the spirit, but then there is our conceptualization of that reality. And our conceptualization of that reality is often, you know, misshapen. I'm confused because Paul has pointed out a number of times that the way that we encounter the spirit is in the embodied reality of our neighbor, which comes to us in maleness and femaleness. That would be my first question. Second, I would say that I thought that God, in fact, did assume genitals whenever he became a man in Jesus Christ and then ascended into heaven. I don't know. I don't presume to know what that must mean, but we certainly refer to our Lord Jesus Christ as a male. But that doesn't mean you should depict the father as a male because the father never became a man that we should depict as a man. But I just meant to say that God God could have became a woman. He became a man. That's just a simple, that's a simple fact. So is not just in like a sort of a immaterial way, although I, I think that we do encounter the spirit in that way as well, but that we encounter men and women and uh, human beings and that the the fruit of the spirit is 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 given to us, uh, love and joy and peace uh, through, through gendered people. And, so, and that's just the situation that we find ourselves in. And also the situation that we find ourselves in is that God became a man. I'm just simply saying that that's just how it happened. Let me uh, uh, embrace what you just said by saying what you just said, I think we take up, and I need to explain this a little bit. What you just said, we take up in a focus on the recognition of the way the Holy Spirit works. And I think scripturally, the Holy Spirit comes to us in the most practical, imminent frame. You know, it's the Father that will, the maleness of God and not literally maleness that will tend to get abstracted and and transcend it. And so this idea of an imminent frame is the Holy Spirit, or if you will, it is the feminine aspect that it gets lost in the subordination of the Spirit with a focus on the transcendent. You made a good point, Matt, about how we experience the Spirit in other people. But she's kind of circling the wagons of this Romans 8 thing to say, in prayer, we experience this threeness, this Holy Spirit, and that tugs on us. But So she's trying to recapture that, but then trying to illustrate over time how that's been suppressed. So then she's trying to show us through art, but then also at the end, how do we recapture a type of Romans 8 experience of the Spirit, uh, experience of the spirit in art? So I think there's a a lot of movements that are going on here, not to denigrate that we experience the Spirit through other people, but if you didn't have a theology of the Holy Spirit first, 
how would you know you were experiencing the spirit through these other people, I guess? This brings me to my, what radical difference distinguishes the God who makes his presence known in the law from the one who gives himself through his presence as nourishment, including nourishment of the senses? How does it come about that the God of the writing of the law cannot be looked upon? What relation in particular is established between non-figurative writing and this God? For God in this period of theophany does not share. He dictates. He separates himself when he gives Moses the inscription of the law, an inscription which is not immediately legible. He no longer provides anything to be eaten or grasped by the senses. He imposes forms on a nation of men as he might have given form to a man's body. But the man's body remains a visible creation while the law, in a sense, does not. The law creates invisibility so that God in his glory cannot be looked upon. What happens to seeing, to flesh, in this disappearance of God? Where can one's eye alight if the divine is no longer to be seen? I think that is a description of what happens when we lose the spirit. There is a return to a kind of uh, lawgiver God. This is the masculine God. This is, you know, in a Lacanian sense, the idea of a symbolic order that is, you know, in a sense, it says it all. But, of course, what's left out is all of enfleshed reality. It's just a symbolic order. Where, where the Spirit is subordinated, the, that we end up with the God of, of the law. And the God of the law is, in, is precisely not the incarnate, enfleshed. In, what, in other words, what's given to us in the Holy Spirit is creation that there is an incorporation of creation, and we are part of creation, and by incorporation, love. In other words, that the love of God is given to us, and our being enveloped into who God is, that is spirit activity, that's enfleshed activity. Could we say, you know, that is the role of the Holy Spirit, but also then the, this feminine kind of Paul's description of new birth? This is a woman in travail. And of course, what's being given birth to is the create, you know, the redemption of the created order. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can only confess Jesus is Lord through the Spirit. Yeah, I like what you're doing there with the, uh, you know, obviously like the sort of perverted patriarchal understanding of the law go is part and parcel with the relinquishing of the holy spirit right yeah and you know it's not to say like i everything i'm saying so far just to kind of be an irritant or, or whatever is with the understanding that you know i, sh I share david's uh, frustrations with uh junia and things like this I'm, I'm i'm well aware you know of the patriarchy of the history of of christianity but I, I still think it's okay, though, to, to say, okay, with that being said, we shouldn't hesitate to say the way that Jesus, he could have talked about God in, in, in any way, the way that he preferred that, to, you know, was Father, that God could have just as easily been incarnate in a woman, 
He was incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth. I just, my questions are, are just to say, well, okay, obviously we don't want to make the move that Paul said earlier that, okay, well, does that in some way privilege men or something like this? Like, obviously that's not the answer. But you uh, understand that's the feminist critique. They would say, oh, this God with genitals uh, is just the God of men, and there is no God for women. Uh, she says, one's particular vision of God nonetheless also informs the whole realm of the personal and the political. There's something to be said there too on the positive side of, of iconography and of uh, these different depictions that I understand the devil twists and 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 of course you know like Saint Seraphim, uh, Saint Seraphim says that pornography is the devil's iconography right so there's all different kinds of ways that you know the enemy can twist these things around too right and I do think that that's, that that's part of it. But I do think that there's a positive. One of the things that Coakley didn't m mention about like Rublev's, um, you know, famous icon of the Trinity. Well, she does mention the sort of ambiguity there. Uh, in genderless. The yeah, the genderness. The, but the part that I that I always liked is that there's an open seat at the table, right? So there's that as the viewer, if you look at that icon, there's a part in the table where you're invited to sit, whether you're male or female. You know, and I've seen that same exact icon, not Rublev, but where the where the the angels there that are presented are just clearly feminine. So I guess all that to say that. Like, I think that it can actually do a lot for, at least for my wife, I can only speak for her, but I think of many other people that, you know, the, the place of women in the iconography and in the, the prayers of the church, right? And the prayers of the matins and in the liturgical services and, and things like that. And the fact that we pray, you know, we say through the prayers of the Theotokos and of the Holy Fathers, right? So like, that's how we kind of, you know, offer our prayers to God because of the prominence of 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 women uh in the, in the life of the church i don't think it's an issue about mary at all or women it's an issue of if i gave you a paintbrush to paint the trinity and you decided to paint mary up there instead of the holy spirit what does that say that's all yeah no i, I understand that I, I don't mean to come off in any way as being like i'm just having a conversation here about about yeah, women, yeah, yeah. women in the church and the place of women in the church and how that's affected my wife but again, so, have, so let's talk about that some more so in the eastern church there's not the problem of patriarchy male dominance subordination of women and that women then are given an equal place in the leadership of the church <laughs> And that's all part and parcel of this focus. Yeah. See, I'm not real acquainted, well acquainted with the Eastern Church, so that was a question. Oh no, women that, can't be priests. That, was, that wasn't a question. That was <laughs> that was an that, that was an attack. But <laughs> no, it's not an attack on anybody, you know, or just attack on everybody. Yeah, mm -hmm. like that's just the whole. Facts. That's the whole ball of wax here. It's just stating facts, right? I mean, that's that's every group her point is well taken that orthodoxy can make progress mm -hmm. that we yeah. can do this thing better and we're still working it out and it hadn't been worked out completely and and that that's the reason we do this stuff i think this is a key issue the male female issue is then certainly it's the image of god in us but it's also reflective of our own conception of who God is, and that is the first sign of the fall. I'm not sure we've gotten beyond 
this first failure yeah and i mean i'm not like a trad i'm not like an ortho trad or whatever like i i I just don't know if like the problem is like oh you know if just if the iconography was just different uh do you think the cappadocians had patriarchal conceptions of the trinity i mean she says yes and that's what enters the creeds too Um, she's saying that the basis of eastern orthodox theology the hierarchical vision of god as trinity is wrong that's her critique so i think what she's doing is pretty powerful to saying that's not it that's not how that's not baseline how you should think of god it's interesting because those guys of course are i i guess i would just need to completely reread it and rethink it because of course macrina their sister is the one who they're saying uh is guiding their thought theologically basil and gregory and then their best friends gregory the theologian so I just don't know what she's saying there. Well, when she's picking out the hierarchy in the Trinity of saying the Father sends the Son, so you could draw it up as a hierarchy, you know, the Father sends the Son, and of course in the East it's the, who sends the Spirit? (laughs) The Filioque, you know, and it's not and the Son, right, whatever. Yeah, Father. So, yeah, so so it's like this, this, you know, a descending there's a descending order that's wrapped up in in God, imaged as Trinity. She's poking at that. That uh, really, I mean, a lot of the Trinitarian thought is hierarchical like that. You know, this is how God is envisioned. And so she wants to say, well, it, it's not so. We shouldn't envision God as a hierarchy like that. Um, in, in a way, she's going to take us beyond east and west not that in other words the whole filioque clause the thing that divides i think she's moving beyond that discussion to a kind of incorporate east and west these other views i mean she she singles out augustine in here too on just seeing as the holy spirit as the love that connects the father and son is like you know this thing is just a go-between yeah i kind of and in that if you take it that way i kind of like the love analogy in other words, if you don't take it as the be-all and end-all, what happens between in the erotic between male and female is a third. There is this love, and I think that would be another sign of a subordination of the Spirit, is that in some way this focus on an incorporating love, on the love of the neighbor, and the love of creation, that's what gets left out. I, I, I guess I just I don't know exactly what all she wants to say. You know, the the church handed down something that was false to us, or or something like this. Or I don't think that's what she, I think that's not her point. But we're learning to be orthodox. Mm-hmm. And David has the answer to your question. What now? Because this, I think, he's enacted what he's doing. In other words, he's come into a church that has had one understanding. And he said, you know what? We can make progress. Right, Dave? I think so. Slow. <laughs> progress. Every week. Slow. You know, I guess I'm encouraged. We're, uh, we're 2,000 years down the road. You think about what's going on, you start getting frustrated in your little, your little church environments. And I guess if this takes a few years for them to catch on, it took some thousands of years, and others haven't caught on yet. Yeah. I always just turn to what we're doing. We're, we're conceptualizing this. We're running this down. I'm, I'm learning stuff all the time. I'm getting a better grasp on it. Isn't that what this whole thing is about? Right. 
that's why I'm reading. That's why I'm hanging out with you guys talking. Somebody asked me today, how do you have friends? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, you know, somebody like me, how could I possibly have friends? Well, the way I have friends is that we talk about God. We talk about Christ. We're on a walk together. We're doing this. We're doing life together. And it's through this kind of interaction. I think we're doing Holy Spirit stuff. In other words, this is an enacting of what she's describing of a dynamic understanding of the role of the Spirit. It is a dynamic understanding of the transformation that I think we need to name that reality and say this is the reality that we're involved in. We're doing it. That's why I go to church, because people have to be my friend. (laughs) (laughs) They can't have no choice. All right. It's a good discussion. I'm, I'm glad we did it. It's a good, good conversation. Thank you, guys. Uh, we'll see you guys. Good night. Appreciate you, Alan. See you guys. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.